0: That's com. The FT. Undercapitalised and uncompetitive, but will your bank be any better if the latest reform proposals are implemented? Unloved and undervalued, but which bargain shares are UK fund managers snapping up? And just plain misunderstood, are exchange-traded tracker funds as risky as regulators make out? All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Elaine Moore. Hello. And Alice Ross. Hello. And our special studio guest, Gervais Williams, Managing Director of MAM Funds. Hello. Let's start then with the money news. On Monday, Sir John Vickers published his Independent Banking Commission's interim report on reforming Britain's banks. It didn't propose breaking up the big four British banks, as some had called for, but it did recommend that their high street banking operations are ring-fenced, with customers protected from investment banking risks behind firewalls, are better capitalised and, in some cases, are a lot smaller and more competitive, with Lloyd's Banking Group being asked to sell substantially more than the 600 branches asked for by Brussels to reduce its 30% share of the current account market. In addition... The Commission suggested measures to make account switching easier, such as introducing a time limit on transfers and account number portability. But, Elaine, looking at the high street as it is now, and knowing what we know about the Vickers' interim report, will it look much different if these plans come into being?
1: It's not likely to look hugely different. So what we should say about this report, first of all, it's an interim report. So that means that nothing definite that it was proposed is actually going to happen. So there's going to be consultation. Things that are suggested might not even come into force. The second thing is, this is the little quote that's being put around. This is a shake-up, not a break-up. So this is uh, proposals to slightly change the banking system, but not to radically alter how UK banks work.
0: So we're wandering down the high street in a few years' time. Um, there won't be quite as many. Lloyd's or Halifax branches we can say that with some degree of certainty Presumably,
1: at the moment Lloyd's group has got about 2,900 branches and the proposal is that definitely 600 of these will be transferred over to a different provider but also another possible maybe 400 could go so we could see 1,000 less branches with the Lloyd's name on it. it depends on who takes them up Virgin Money have said that they are interested so we could see this new name on the high street or we could just see names that we already know we could see Santander for example might buy some up
0: so presumably a little bit more choice and let's say that I decide that um, I'm fed up with my Halifax current account and my branch has disappeared from the high street so I'm going to transfer it somewhere else what will these account switching proposals do to help me
1: the account switching proposals are actually quite interesting one idea that i quite like personally is this idea that you would have your own account number so in the same way that you have your own mobile phone number which you take from provider to provider you could have your own sort code and account number which you then move across that means you don't have to get to know another number and another pin code and so on the banks unsurprisingly aren't hugely keen on that idea they say it'd be very complicated the sort code belongs to the bank it directs the security, it says what the branch is, what the bank is. So who knows if that will actually happen or not. But the other idea is to make the time in which you switch accounts less. So that would hopefully mean that you would have less chance that there would be a problem with your direct debits, your payments coming out of your banks, which is what a lot of people are worried about when they switch current accounts.
0: Yeah, that is that is one of the sort of most off-putting things. But presumably, if you also have um, a sort of dedicated uh, portable account number and sort code, you don't have to in, you know, inform everyone that you pay, that your bank account has changed, all your direct debits and standing orders will continue to work.
1: Absolutely and that's how it should be really, it shouldn't be this very complicated, traumatic event just because you want to switch provider because your provider is going to pay you nothing on your credit and barely anything on your ISA or savings rates. It shouldn't be very difficult for you to switch across from who you want to give you your bank account any more so than it is for other provision of services in this country.
0: And just finally, if there is this ring fencing or fire walling or whatever structure they intend to build between high street retail banking and investment banking. Is that gonna make any difference at all to the sorts of products that you're sold in your in your local branch?
1: I don't think it will make a difference to the sorts of products but what you might have seen is some headlines about the cost of some of those products. So there was this much trumpeted 1000 extra pounds on your mortgage. This is all speculation so who knows what will actually happen but the banks and analysts are saying that it is likely that if the cost of securing deposits is increased then that cost will be passed on to you and me. So that could mean less free bank accounts, that could mean more, um, a higher rate of on your
0: mortgage so we get slightly better slightly safer banks but we have to pay for them elaine thank you very much for that and for more details of how the high street might look for bank customers in the future take a look at elaine's article and graphic in the money section of this weekend's ft still to come on the show are low-cost index tracking etfs really as simple as abc but first unloved and undervalued shares Last week in the FT Money section, we reported the views of some fund managers who think that value investing, buying shares at prices that are low multiples of a company's earnings and assets and yielding a high level of dividend income, is set to deliver strong returns. One piece of research suggested that the historic long-term outperformance of high-yield value stocks over growth stocks is just about to reassert itself. So which value stocks should fund managers and, indeed, private investors be looking at? There are plenty of unloved and apparently undervalued shares in the retail sector, for example. But are they worth buying now while the economy remains weak? Alice, presumably not every lowly rated share offers value.
2: Well, this is the... um constant dilemma of the value fund manager. Um, is, uh, is a share kind of um, priced lowly because the market is being unfair to it? Or is it does it have that low valuation because there's some very bad news coming up and so you should really avoid it? And that's that's always the dilemma that you face if you're trying to do some value investing. Um, funnily enough, that hasn't really been an issue for the past couple of years because value investing hasn't really been the main game in town. I mean, the markets have just been rising pretty much since March 2009. So it hasn't been a great time. Time to be a value investor. But I'm here with um, Gervais Williams, who is a value investor. Gervais, um, signs that uh, the market may be turning and it might be a good time again to be a value investor.
3: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things about uh, value investing, of course, it does deliver lots of return over the long term, but there does have periods when it's out of fashion. I think what's exciting about the period going forward is that the, uh, the combination of value and perhaps scale uh, look as a, as a combination they've been underperforming for the longest period as far as I know, on record, there was some research out from the London Business School at the beginning of this year suggesting that. And so it does suggest that perhaps, for whatever reason, that period will come to an end quite soon and we'll see the value investing taking off again and delivering the customary performance.
2: And that's good news for you, obviously, because that's the style that you, you quite like. So, so tell us what's out there at the moment in terms of value investing. What areas are looking good?
3: I think the key thing is to keep in mind perhaps what the trends are in the economy. Uh, As you were saying, retail looks as though it's going to be under pressure for quite some time. But what is quite interesting is that we've been in a period where credit has been expanding very rapidly for probably 25 years, and we're probably looking forward at credit expanding at a fairly slow rate. So it could be that different types of universes start to outperform. I mean, I'm most interested particularly in the uh, trade goods sector. These are of the manufacturing and some of the insurance sectors, and these have been under price pressure for years. But in the last year or two, we're beginning to see ch- trends changing. The Chinese uh, wage inflation is making them a little less competitive, and the inventory cycle also led to them becoming uh, heavily uh, affected by sort of you know stock. Uh, excess stock at certain stages in the cycle. So there's, a, there's, a, there's there's two reasons why perhaps buyers in the European Union and particularly the UK are now looking to have shorter lead times in certain parts of their product so they can adjust the stock levels uh, in line with market demand.
2: And what kind of what kind of companies are we talking about here? Could you give some examples of ones that you're looking at?
3: Well of course they could be engineering companies, they could be food manufacturing companies, they can be anything which is involved in product which can be traded across borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, a company I saw very recently was a company called Port Marion Group. This is a company which is involved in all sorts of fine China. And what was interesting about the meeting I had with them was that the new management team which came in only two years ago had already decided, they had an operation in the UK in in the Stoke-on-Trent, but they'd already decided that they thought that would be sufficient for their needs for the foreseeable future. But when I saw them just recently, they said that certain stock cost issues, certain quality issues were leading to them to consider actually increasing their capacity in the Stoke-on-Trent facility for the first time, well, for the first time for a very long time. So the point about that is we're seeing changes in behaviour and new trends developing, which could be very attractive.
2: And uh, that's interesting because that's um, obviously you've met the company now and you're now taking a view on it. Um but the market presumably isn't as convinced. How can private investors uh, tell, you know, if if they're not really able to meet the the management of companies and kind of take their own view, how do you think they can go about finding the best value stocks?
3: I think one of the ways you can do that is obviously look at the annual reports um, Mm. as they come out, and that gives you plenty of opportunity. I think actually there's great advantage for some individuals who live quite close to – corporations near them if they can identify some of the local businesses maybe they pass them on the way to work yeah. they can just take a little view in, is, the, is the stock levels very high in the factory is there you know, lots of stock outside the, the factory or is it mm. indeed very busy with lots of trucks going in and out and I think you can get an understanding as to whether things are going quite well from that point of view
2: and then finally we should also um, look at the issue of when you shouldn't buy a stock that's undervalued um, can you give maybe any examples of things that the market doesn't love but you really think that it's unloved for a very good reason
3: well, I think actually many of the sectors which have underperformed recently probably are going to continue underperforming. Mm-hmm. I think that we had strong sector growth in terms of sector inflation in the service sector for the last you know, 25 years. I think lots of those businesses are going to be under quite a lot of pressure, not just those supplying the government, but also those supplying other businesses. So I think anything in the service sector needs to be, have a double check. It's those companies with strong value in the form of assets on the balance sheet or potentially good and growing cash flow, which are the ones which I would advocate should be looked at.
2: Gervais, thanks very much.
3: Yes,
0: and uh, if you'd like to know more uh, about value stocks uh, with some more examples, have a read of Alice's article in the Money section of this weekend's FT and on the website at ft.com forward slash money. And finally, exchange traded funds or ETFs. In the US, these low-cost stock market-listed index tracker funds are hugely popular. In Europe, there's been a boom in issuance, and in recent years, even UK investors have started to realise that they are a cheap and easy way to gain exposure to equities, bonds or commodities. But on Tuesday, the Financial Stability Board, which was created after the financial crisis to oversee global regulators, warned that these funds could pose systemic risk. It said ETFs might be a risk if they are hit by requests for redemptions in a market sell-off, and said that regulators should keep a close eye on the market. It was particularly concerned about so-called swap-based ETFs, which rely on a swap contract with an investment bank to meet the return due to investors. But Alice, how exactly can straightforward index tracker funds now be making regulators nervous?
2: Well, it's um, it's all to do with the way that they track the index. Um, so it's not just the fund itself, but it's the method that they're using. And there are two main ways that uh, an ETF can track the index. So firstly, you have um, physically based ETFs, and they will just basically buy the index. They'll buy the stocks in the index they're tracking, say the FTSE 100, they buy those stocks. They don't always buy all of the stocks because you know there's cost involved in buying and selling, so sometimes they'll just buy. You know, a a sample of stocks that they think is going to adequately replicate that index. Um, But that's so that's one area. And, And a lot of people prefer those so called plain vanilla ETFs because they're holding the same stocks that they're tracking and people quite like that. The other type of tracking that an ETF does is swap-based. So the ETF will, um, in order to deliver the return on the index that it's tracking, it buys a swap with an investment bank, and then the investment bank is promising it the return over whatever period of time. Um, But then the things that it actually holds physically in the ETF can be something completely different from the index that it's tracking. So, I mean, you've had examples of European ETFs holding Japanese stocks.
0: But they do this uh, as a form of collateral, don't they? Yeah, And I I would have thought that people would think about collateral as being a good thing. If you you hold collateral, it's it's something that's sort of of like security against things going wrong.
2: It depends on the nature of the collateral. Now, this report was uh, hinting, suggesting, they said to me that we wanted to hint at this, that the investment banks, the type of collateral that is put into these ETFs, is frequently collateral that investment banks have found hard to to put elsewhere. So it tends to be the more illiquid stuff, stuff that's difficult to sell on the markets overnight. um, And that is what gets put into these ETFs, which otherwise would seem quite mainstream. So you actually have, the collateral is illiquid, difficult to sell. And this is the worry, that if suddenly everyone is... Uh, wanting their money out of the ETF, it turns out that the holdings of the ETF aren't going to be the FTSE 100 or the euro stocks. It's going to be some strange, weird um, securities from elsewhere that will be difficult to sell.
0: Which does explain the concern about uh, illiquidity at times of, of falling markets. Mm. But I suppose uh, the problem is that some ETFs will hold highly liquid collateral. Some will hold sort of blue chip shares as collateral. But how, as a a private investor, can you know whether the collateral being held by provider A is liquid, while the collateral from provider B is just the rubbish that they can't shift?
2: Well, this is the issue, and this is what the FSB is saying needs to be far more clear and transparent to investors, because it doesn't think that that is made clear at the moment. as far as I know, it's not on the fund fact sheets, what kind of collateral they're holding, because, of course, that can change overnight if it's with an investment bank. It's whatever whatever gets shoved in. So that's not really the kind of information they could give you on, on a fact sheet. Um, how Quite how they would do that, I'm not sure, but th- they're definitely saying that, yes, people don't know enough about the collateral in their ETF and they need to be told.
0: And is there any any evidence that this has
3: caused a problem in the past? Yes, I mean, I've certainly seen um, some of these share prices of these ETFs moving very substantially. I mean, in the, in the flash crash, you know, which happened on May the 6th of last year, we saw certain share prices falling you know, more than 99%. Now, those transactions were reversed later on. It was, it was a one-off uh, event. But uh, I think this kind of area is uh, very concerning for investors and certainly for my own clients. I don't go anywhere near ETFs. So, Alice, uh, more transparency needed as usual? Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you both for that
0: and uh, for an explanation of the risks attached to swap-based ETFs. Take a look at Alice's article in the money section of this weekend's FT. That's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find all of these stories plus daily news updates, top tips and our latest pensions Q&A on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is money at ft.com next week we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from elaine alice and james williams of mam funds bye Bye. thank
3: you very much for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts flexibility is great that's why there's yoga